Let me start by praying. Oh Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. God, it is a difficult thing to do, so God, I ask that you help me preach it faithfully. God, may I build up the people here, and God, may I rightfully handle your word. God, please bless this night. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was very different being up here instead of in the back room with the kids, so um, just bear with me. <laughs> so we're going to be going through Nahum. Let me give some background information on Nahum. So Nahum is writing to the nation of Nineveh. And Jonah, a hundred years prior, was tasked with going to Nineveh. And as we should recall, he did not obey at first. He immediately jumped ship, or I should say got into a ship, and tried sailing in the opposite direction of Nineveh and running away from his task. Jonah hated Nineveh because of how cruel and wicked they were. But nevertheless, he did get to Nineveh, and he went around the town for three days in calling them to repentance. And they actually did repent, and the king called for a fast of every person, including the animals, and they actually repented at least for a season. A hundred years later is where Nahum begins. But in between, the Assyrians eventually got back to their old and wicked ways. They first started to attack nations around them, including Egypt, Israel, and Judah. And so there was a king that was named Hezekiah. And he was arguably one of the best kings that the nation had ever seen. He ended up restoring the priesthood, starting the Passover, and he started to tear down all the Baal worship in the Atrium pole, and he caused a great revival in the nation of Judah. It was a great time where people started turning to the Lord, and God blessed this time. And he actually started to rebel against the Assyrians, but so did the northern tribe. What ends up happening is the Assyrians first attack the northern tribe, and they invade in 705 BC. They end up completely destroying the northern tribe of Israel and besieging Samaria and taking all the people captive and sending them into Israel. Shortly after, there's a new king of the Assyrians, Sennacherib, and he becomes king, and he invades Judah. And he begins by taking all the strongholds. He takes about 40 of their strongholds and destroys them. And he was in this small town of Lachish, which is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. And at this point, Hezekiah sends word to the king of Assyria. And he says, I have done wrong. I shouldn't have rebelled against you. What can I do to make this right? And the king of Assyria says, well, give me this large amount of gold and silver. And so King Hezekiah ends up emptying the whole temple of the Lord, his personal treasury, and he still doesn't have enough money. So he takes the temple gold off the door and melts it down. That's how poor he became to try to make the king of Assyria happy. And the king of Assyria doesn't keep his word. He ends up sending a commander to Jerusalem. And we should be fairly familiar, this is in 2 Kings 18, where this commander stands outside of the city wall and he starts mocking the people. And he says that the people in this town are destined to eat their own dung and drink their own urine and he starts mocking Hezekiah, starts mocking God and he says that no God has ever rescued them, their people from the Assyrians and he starts naming nation after nation that has fallen to the Assyrians. Hezekiah then goes into the temple of the Lord and he starts praying 
and the prophet Isaiah comes up to him and gives a judgment to the Syrians. And he says that the Assyrians will be defeated, they will flee back to their own land, and the king will go into the temple, his idols will be cut down, and the king of Assyria will die. And that winds up happening right afterwards is the angel of the Lord in one night kills 185,000 of the Assyrian army. They flee and they go back and the king of Assyria goes into the temple while he's worshiping his false gods and his two sons come and backstab him and kill him. What ends up happening is God rescues the, north, the southern tribe, Judah, for a time being, and the Syrians spend the next couple of years regaining their strength. King Hezekiah eventually dies, and there's a new king, King Manascus. And it was during the life of King Manascus that Nahum is um, sent to Nineveh. So it's during this time. Now, Manascus is one of the worst kings that they have ever had. They went from having the best king to a king that reinstated idol worship, brought back the ashram poles, and he actually performed child sacrifice. He was a horrible king. And it was during this time that the Syrians were now at their highest peak of power. And Manascus actually gets captured and he gets dragged in hooks to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were known for their cruelty. They were a very violent and cruel people. In fact, when they led Manascus, they probably led him with a hook through his nose all the way back to um, Nineveh. The Assyrians were cruel and wicked. And so it was during this time when Israel... Um, Sorry, when Judah went from being a great kingdom, God was blessing them during King Hezekiah, and now Manasseh is in charge. They're at their lowest point. The Assyrians are now at their peak in the highest point that this book is written. So, Nahum chapter 1. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God, the Lord is avenging and wrathful, and the Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. If you notice in those verses, it repeats the same idea. Avenging God, avenging, wrathful, vengeance, jealous. God is completely serious about the judgment that is to come. It gets repeated about three times that there is wrath, vengeance, and then he also uses the phrase, God is a jealous God. And that doesn't have the same negative connotation that we typically think of someone who is jealous. This jealousy is in terms of faithfulness to the true God. And so God is jealous for right worship of him. And the reason that this is important is because only through true worship of God can our actual purpose be fulfilled? It's only through worshiping the right God the right way. So it is good for God to be jealous for his people to worship him because we cannot find satisfaction in anything else. So God is a jealous God, but in the same way that a husband should be jealous for his wife. It would be a horrible thing if a husband wasn't jealous for his wife and that the wife was just talking to other men, flirting with them, we would think something is wrong if the husband wasn't jealous and wanted the sole devotion of his wife. And that is what God requires of us, but also all people. God demands full devotion to him because when we're not worshiping God and we're worshiping false idols, we are just giving into our sin in building the judgment that will come upon us. So it is because God is a jealous God that he must punish and avenge anything that is pulling our interest away from him. So God's wrath is being built up towards the Ninevites. 
but there's an interesting turn that happens from verse 2 to verse 3. It goes from God being this jealous, avenging, wrathful God to in verse 3 saying, the Lord is slow to anger. We just went from talking about God being a wrathful God to all of a sudden him being slow to anger. It seems like it shouldn't fit. That slow the anger and by no means clear the guilty actually should remind us of Exodus. In Exodus 34, Moses has been given the Ten Commandments and he has gone up to the mountain. He was told only Moses can go up to the mountain and if anyone else tries to go on the mountain, they will die. And at this point, the mountain has actually caught fire from the presence of God. And so Moses goes to the top of the mountain, and when he gets there, the Lord is there. And the Lord passes before him and proclaims Yahweh, Yahweh, which is the name of God, a a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. We already saw that God is slow to anger just by the example of Jonah all the way to Nahum. God was slow to anger and gave Nineveh a chance to repent, which they did, but then they went back to their sinful ways. And it's now been a hundred years. That's how long God's patience lasts, um, lasted for the Assyrians. In fact, it sometimes takes God hundreds of years to finally judge a wicked nation. It took um, 400 years for God to finally judge some of the nations in the Promised Land, In Genesis, God told Abraham that he will inherit the promised land, but he said, you can't have it yet because there are other nations, and it says that their fullness of time has not come, meaning their sin has not come to the point where God has exhausted his patience. So it took God 400 years to judge the Philistines, the Amorites, and all those other nations. So God is a God who is slow to anger. And this is something that each one of us should take great delight in, because if God punished us the moment that we sinned, no one, not one of us would be alive. In fact, God would have destroyed the whole earth already, and there would be no one to have more kids, because everyone would be dead. So it is a great blessing that God is slow to anger, because that gives us the opportunity to repent of our sins and come to the Lord. God gives us ample opportunity. He sends us warning after warning to repent. And that's what the book of Nahum is pointing out. Jonah went to call them to repent. They repented. God is now giving them another chance. Repent, Nineveh, or judgment will come upon you. And so it is a gracious thing that God is so patient with us. But there's another scary thing in verse 3 because it says, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Each one of us is guilty, but it says no one that God will not clear the guilt. This is where Jesus Christ comes in. It is because of Jesus who came born of a woman who came to earth, lived the perfect life, and died on our behalf that we can no longer be counted guilty because Jesus took our guilt. So because God was slow to anger, and because he sent Jesus, we now can be free from the guilt that we deserve. And so we should take great comfort in the verses where it talks about slow the anger and by no means clear the guilty because we know Jesus who can and has cleared our guilt. So we should turn to Jesus because the wrath of God is coming. The next couple of verses 
outline God's anger and what happens when his wrath is actually displayed. Look at the second half of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. That is a picture of God's wrath being outpoured. In fact, it's so serious that the very foundations of the earth are shaking. It says that there are storms. The sea is dried up from the anger of the Lord. It says that Lebanon wilts. So Lebanon was this mountainside where it was green. It was a wonderful pasture, a beautiful land. You can almost picture it like a flower and a flower that has now been clipped and is starting to die and turn brown. is that kind of wither. Also think of a grass field during wintertime when it goes from a lush green to a yellow and brown and is starting to die. The wrath of God is affecting the very nature in the world. His anger causes the earth to quake before him and the hills are melting and shaking. The wrath of God is a serious thing that we should tremble. Verse 6 says it perfectly. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces. We should fear the wrath of God and we should tremble before it. It is because of our sin that we should tremble before God. But we should be reminded, God is a slow to anger. In verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of the in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We keep getting these verses where it goes from the anger and the wrath of God to God being slow to anger. The anger and the wrath of God to him saying, but the Lord is good. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. The nation of Judah has already lost most of his strongholds and they have been destroyed trampled upon, torn down. And these strongholds would sometimes have walls that were several feet high. They could be, in some cases, large as 30 feet, if not taller, and sometimes as thick as 8 feet. And it says that the Lord is the stronghold. Assyrian destroyed most of the nation of Israel and Judah's strongholds. But it says, but the Lord is a stronghold that can actually defend against the enemy. It is because God is powerful that the whole earth quakes, that he is the one that we should take our refuge. We should go into the Lord as our stronghold to flee the wrath that can come. God is patient, but his anger does come. His patience does wear out. And if we haven't repented by then, we will experience the full anger and the wrath of God. But again, we can take comfort because he is a good God. He is a stronghold. These words were also meant to encourage the nation of Judah. Again, they were at their lowest point with King Manascus. Their nation by all practicality, was just about to be destroyed. Their king had been led away with a hook in his nose and had been led to Nineveh to stand trial. But then it goes to say, but the Lord is a stronghold. He is a good God. It is meant to encourage the nation of Judah, but likewise it should encourage us to take refuge and comfort in God. Let's move on. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his enemies, and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you 
What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not arise a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunks as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted against the Lord, a worthless counselor. These verses are talking about now Nineveh. And it says, Nineveh, you are testing the Lord. You are plotting against the Lord. You will not stand in the day of trouble. And it says, for one of you has come the plot against the Lord. That is talking about the king of the Assyrians. And so verse 12 actually starts referring to the punishment that God will start bestowing on them. Thus says the Lord, Though they are full of strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. The Assyrians had a great and strong army. And God says, I'm going to destroy it. And we already know he can, because in 2 Kings 19, the angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 soldiers in one night while they were sleeping without waking up a single soldier. And that was one angel. Jesus could have called a whole legion of angels. Just imagine how much damage that could do in a single night. And so God says, Assyrians, you are strong, but I will wipe you out. Judah, you are weak, but I will not burn you anymore. And it's a call to the nation of Judah, come back to me. Turn from your evil ways. Take refuge in me. And he says, and now I will break his yoke, being the Assyrians from you, Judah, and I will birth your bonds apart. God is promising, Judah, you are in a tough situation, but I am going to set you free. The Lord has given commandments about you. No more shall your name be persecuted. From the house of your God, I will cut off the carved image and the metal idols, and I will make your grave, for you are vile. God is saying what he's going to do. He's saying he's going to cut off the descendants of the Assyrians, meaning the nation of Assyria will be no more. There will be no more people from that nation he will get rid of the idols that they worship. And he says, finally, I will make your grave. That's a direct reference to the king of Assyria. He is going to kill them, kill the king because of his vile sin and destroy him. The nation of Assyria's judgment has come. And chapter 2 actually then describes what exactly that judgment will look like. So in Nahum chapter 1, it says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. This word vision is actually should remind us of Revelation, where John was given a vision and saw stuff in the future. Nahum very well probably got to witness the destruction of the nation of Nineveh. In chapter 2, is him describing what their day looks like. So chapter 2, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob at the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The Assyrians have destroyed Israel. They have destroyed Judah. And God is going to punish them. And so now, here comes the battle scene. The shield of the mighty men is red, and his soldiers are clothed in scarlet. Just imagine, you have the city of Nineveh, and you have this row of soldiers. They're dressed in red. They're dressed in scarlet with red on them. They're probably a reference to Babylonians armor, for they wore red, and they would oftentimes have bronze shields, and these bronze shields reflected light, and it actually helped them make them look larger. It was a tactic to scare and to put fear in them. So this is the Babylonian army standing at the city of Nineveh, and then it says the chariots 
race madly through the street. They rush to and fro from the square. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightnings. So now the roll of soldiers are standing there. Chariots are now on the battlefield. They are going into the town. They are moving like lightning. So they're moving very quickly, and they are bringing destruction. He remembers his officers, this is verse 5, and they stumble as they go. Most likely this is a reference to the the Babylonians are so quick to destroy Nineveh that they can't even get the bodies out of the way and they are stumbling over the dead bodies on their way into the city. So they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up. This army of soldiers lined up, chariots, and now these siege towers have come, which would typically be a two-foot-tall building on wheels that they would push up to the wall, and they had ladders inside so they could climb the walls and be protected. And so they push up the siege towers, they get into the walls, and disaster starts happening on the Assyrians. The river gates are opened, and the palace melts away. Nineveh was not too far away from a major Tigris river that had a smaller river actually run through the town, and so they had a gate preventing people from walking in. But at this point, the gate has been destroyed. Bodies are everywhere. A line of soldiers is outside the wall. In fact, now they are climbing the siege tower, coming in with chariots as their support. His mistress is shipped, is stripped, and is carried away. Her slave girl is lamenting and mourning like, like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure or of the wealth of all the precious things. Nineveh was known to be very cruel but also very greedy, and they would plunder everything in sight. And now the plunderers have become the plundered. And so their city is being destroyed, is being opened up. There are soldiers running in, um, and people are taking everything they can. Desolation, desolation and ruin, verse 10. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in their loins. It goes on to then describe a lion's den. In the Assyrians, you could think of that their mascot was a lion. They were vicious. They were ruthless. And now the lion's den has been raided, has been opened up, and now they're preyed upon. Now this whole scene, Nahum is probably seeing, he's seeing this judgment, soldiers, plunderers, chariots, destruction. And it's made to think, wow, this Babylonian nation, they're destroying Nineveh. But there is someone who is pulling the strings, and it is the Lord God who has been acting the whole time. Verse 13, it says, Behold, I, being the Lord, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. It is the Lord who acts, and it is the Lord who directs the course of history. The Babylonians, they thought they were now high and mighty, but they have to give credit to God because it is God who has now allowed the Babylonian nation to destroy the Assyrians. It is God who has been acting the whole time, which is one of the lessons we learned from Job. So it is the Lord who has always been in control. It is the Lord who we should again take a refuge in, for it is the Lord who has been in control the whole time. The Assyrians, they thought they were in control, but they got defeated. The Babylonians, they thought they were powerful and in control, but they end up getting destroyed later. It's always been the Lord who has been directing the course of history. Apart from the Lord, nothing can happen. It says in Proverbs that the Lord directs the heart of a king like a river. It is the Lord who has always been in control. 
So this book, Nahum, is meant to encourage the nation of Judah. Judah again is in, is in a wreck, and the Lord is comforting. And the Lord says, I've been in control this whole time. I've been slow to anger this whole time. I am a good God. I am a stronghold for those who take refuge on me. Chapter 1 is about the character of God and his ability to punish evil. Chapter 2 is about the judgment of Nineveh. And chapter 3 is about why Nineveh deserves to be judged. You see, God doesn't just punish nations on a whim. He doesn't decide one morning, it's been a couple of decades since I destroyed a nation. Who should I choose this time? The Assyrians seem pretty cruel. I'm just going to pick on them. No, God lays out point by point why he is destroying Nineveh, and he gives three reasons. The first reason he gives is because of their murder, their lies, and their plunder in verse 1 of chapter 3. In verse 4 of chapter 3, it talks about their, their idolatrous rituals. In verse 8 of chapter 3, it talks about their pride. So let's kind of go through these and see why God judges the nation. Because there is a lot of parallels that we should view. We shouldn't look back at the book of Nahum just because it's a minor prophet that most Christians don't even read regularly. Most Christians don't have a familiarity with it. But this book is relevant even today. We can look at this book and actually understand that God judges nations and he punishes them for their evil deeds and he gives reasons why he will judge nations. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to his prey. So there's three, three things there. The bloody city. The Assyrians were a very cruel nation. Some of the stuff they did is just horrendous. They loved to torture people. Again, they led Men King Manascus away with a hook in his nose. Just imagine the pain of that. So it's because of their cruelty. They love violence. They love being powerful. They love intimidating people. They are a violent nation. They love murder. So they are a bloody nation. And that is one of the reasons that God judges them. But we can look at nations that do this even nowadays. Just look at the war with Russia and Ukraine. Bloody nation, greedy, full of lies. Same things going on nowadays. China with Taiwan. Nations are still like this. This book isn't just meant to be reserved for the nation of Nineveh it still points out the issues that nations have nowadays. Violence. A love of violence. But this goes way more than just people who are willing to murder because Jesus actually explains a lot more what it means to murder. Jesus says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you are liable for murder. So we shouldn't just judge the Ninevites and say, oh, they were a murderous tribe and they actually killed people when we are just as guilty within our own hearts. In some ways, we also like violence. In terms of we want people to have, we want to get revenge on people. We may not do anything about it, but how often have we thought about getting even with somebody? Someone does something and we just want to get them back. We want to be spiteful. We do it all the time. We give passive aggressive comments. We'll give people the silent treatment. We may not be willing to stab somebody with a knife, but we're willing to let our anger come out in other ways. The other day I was at the library, and I saw this little, probably four-year-old girl and her brother who was probably eight or nine, and this girl repeatedly kept hitting her brother and then at one point, I watched her grab her brother's arm, and he's just kind of laughing it off like, you're too weak to do anything. 
And this little four-year-old girl starts twisting the arm. I'm like, that girl's trying to break his arm. Like, no joke. She's four years old and already has evil in her heart to try breaking an arm. She's twisting in this really weird way. It's in our hearts, too. We're just smart enough to not show it that way. But in our hearts, we still have murderous intents. We still hate our brothers. We're still passive-aggressive towards people. That's the very thing the Ninevites got judged for. We just think we're better at times because we don't stab somebody with a knife. We don't shoot somebody. We're still guilty. It also talks about them being full of lies, which we saw in 2 Kings. The commander of the Syrian army went to King Hezekiah right after King Hezekiah had given all the gold of the temple, all the gold in his personal treasury, and all the gold off the door of the temple. And then the Assyrians come like, oh, you should surrender. We're going to destroy you anyways. The Assyrians were known to lie to get their way. How are we any different? We're willing to lie all the time. But we just don't consider some of the stuff we do as lies. We'll hide information. We'll purposely withhold crucial information in a situation because it may look, make us look bad. Withholding false information that is relevant and important is a form of deceit. It's still lying. We as Christians should be men of the truth because God is truth. We should look to God who is perfectly holy and we should seek to have his standards. We shouldn't look to the culture and just say, oh, we're better than these other people. We're better than Russia. We're not willing to go to war and destroy a smaller nation, but we're willing to go get revenge on a, on a person who wronged us. We're willing to do stuff. We're just not doing it in the same violence in bloody manner. We're willing to tell lies and withhold information to make ourselves look better. We use lies to prop up our own pride. And that's what the nation of Assyria did. They would lie constantly. We don't show compassion to people. Although it says do not murder, that's then a commandment that we should do the opposite murder. Compassion, sympathy towards people. Lying, we should tell the truth then. Paul says that in Ephesians. Take off lying and be a truth teller. We need to think of the opposite. We shouldn't be satisfied with just not sinning. We should then seek to do what is right and what is honoring to God. We should then seek to show compassion, sympathy to people, tell the truth. The last one, plunder. We saw that in chapter 2, that when the Babylonian nation came into the city, there was plunder everywhere. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. The nation of Syria, greedy nation, they built an empire of the plunder of the enemies. It's not an uncommon thing for nations to go to war just to get the resources of a smaller nation. The heart of it is greed. We want something. It's coveting. We see something, we want it, and we'll lie to get it. We'll do a lot of stuff to get it. And again, we think we may not be as bad as the Assyrians because we didn't plunder a city to get it. But we're willing to make our coworkers look bad so we can get a promotion, so that we can get more wealth. We're willing to lie for money. It is a common thing for the greed of our heart to be the same greed that was in the Assyrian's heart and to want wealth and plunder and whatever that brings. So chapter three, there are three judgments that get called out and then what the Lord does because of that. So woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. So here's what the Lord does. Crack the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bouncing chariots, horsemen charging, 
flashing swords and glittering spear, host of the slain, keeping imports, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. How's God going to judge the Assyrians for their bloody, lying plunders? He's going to do the same thing to them. He is going to bring a whip. He is going to bring horses and swords. And he's going to, in one sense, give them a taste of their own medicine. He's going to bring the same thing that they were doing on nations, and he will do it to them. So why did God judge the Assyrians? He judged them for one reason, was because they were a murderous, liar, and greedy. And he destroyed them by the sword. Verse 4. This is the second aspect of why God is judging the Ninevites. And all for the countless whoring of the prostitute, grateful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whoring and people with her charms. The second reason the Ninevites got judged was because they're idolatrous rituals. They were known for sensualities. Not sexuality, but sensualities. This is appealing to the senses. You can think someone who wants um, the five senses satisfied. They want to feel something that is good. They want to taste something that is good. They want their senses to be pleased. And so they have these rituals that satisfy them. Prostitution would be the easiest example. Satisfy your touch. And so the nation of Assyrian, they were into sensualities. We can actually think of this like um, the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox Church. They love having these rituals and these ordinances that you hear the bells, you smell the incense, and it's a religion that completely is based on satisfying your different senses. But we understand in Christianity, there's something greater to satisfy than our flesh. It's the soul of a person that matters. It is true worship. And it says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So yes, our emotions are involved. Our senses are involved in true worship. But true worship of God should never be apart from right religion and truth. If we're not worshiping the true God, what does it matter if we have the right music? If our heart isn't in it, if we're not worshiping him in truth, it is pointless. So it was judgment on the Assyrians for their idolatrous rituals. And so what, what will the Lord do because of this? Verse 5, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. So this whole thing about lifting up the skirt and seeing the nakedness, this is the idea of I'm going to shame you. I'm going to let the whole world know of your evil practices. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to expose everything you do in darkness. And if we think about that, that's a frightful thing. Just imagine if our evil deeds were ever exposed to the light. If people knew what just went on in our heads. If people just knew what we did behind closed doors. If people just knew what we did when no one was looking. We would be humiliated. We'd be mortified. And God's saying, I'm going to do that to you, Assyrian. I'm going to let the whole world know what evil things you have done. I'm going to expose it so everyone will know. So after World War II and the Holocaust, when the Allies came in and saw the consecration camps, they took pictures of the atrocities that were happening. And the whole world was mortified at what had happened. And Germany was shamed. That's the kind of reaction that should happen when the whole world knows the evil that we have done. 
when the whole world can just see everything that will happen. In fact, God says that will happen in the final days. When judgment comes, every word that we have ever said, every thought and deed will be on display. And we will have to give an account for that. So we should view our lives that there will be a day where we will have to give an account for that evil. There will be a day where what we did behind closed doors and when no one was looking and what we thought in our head will be exposed and the shame that it will bring. And that should be a frightful thing for us. We should then seek to do what is right when no one's looking. We should seek to honor God because it is the right thing to do, even if no one ever sees us. If no one ever knows of our good deed, we should do it anyways. Why? Because it honors God. God will bring shame upon the Assyrians and judge them for their evil. And that is a frightful thing. So again, the first one, the Assyrians were judged because of their violence, their greed, and their lies. Second was because of their idolatrous rituals. And third was because of their pride. Look at verse 8. Are you better than Tyrus that sat by the Nile, which water was around her, her rampart at the sea, and the water her wall? This was the nation of Egypt. And before the Assyrians, Egypt was the great superpower, we could say that. They were the most powerful nation in the world. And the Assyrians, they destroyed the Egyptians. But the Assyrians were so prideful that they couldn't even recognize that that same thing, their destruction, could one day happen to them. Are you better than Egypt? You think what you did to Egypt won't happen to you? They were a prideful nation. They thought everything was going to go well for them. They were strong. They were ruthless. They were arrogant. And it's because it's arrogant that they couldn't even see what was about to happen. How often do we think that we're better than people? How often do we think that that will never happen to me? It's not going to happen. I'm not going to worry about it. We look at other people's mistakes like, oh, I'll just do it better. I'll just, I'll, I can do the exact same thing and it just won't happen to me because I'm better than that person. It's the pride of our heart. It's the arrogance. And that's what these Syrians get judged for. They think they're better than other nations. They think they're better so they can plunder a city. They think they're better so they just murder all the people. They're so prideful. And that's one of the most dangerous things is that pride just dwells in our hearts. Instead of our heart, we just think we're better than people. We're selfish. What is selfish? We think we're better than someone else and they're beneath us. So we're selfish because we think we're better than them. Let it not be so. We should look to Jesus who humbled himself, who took on flesh and took upon himself the role of a servant. The Philippians chapter 2. We should look to Jesus as an example that though he was God, that he was willing to humble himself, he didn't have to do any of that. He was the God of the universe. Look back at chapter 1. He's powerful. The foundations of the earth are literally falling apart because of God. Yet God was willing to take on flesh, come to earth, and as Jesus Christ was willing to die on the cross for a sinful group of humans. Jesus Christ came. How can we even think we're anything? Jesus has to die for us. We think we're all important. Jesus came for us because we were sinful, because we weren't that great. We should humble ourselves. We are a nation 
America is the nation. We're bloody. We have the blood of, of millions of babies on our hand. We're liars. Each one of us lies. We're greedy. We worship falsely all the time. There's so many false religions in this nation. Unless we think that we're not in a different church, we need to evaluate the way that we do stuff. Are we worshiping God rightly? Are we doing it properly? Pride. We're all prideful. We should view ourselves that we deserve the same judgment that came upon the Assyrians. The Assyrians were judged for those reasons. And each one of us is like that. May we not think we're better than the Syrians because we don't go around plundering cities and destroying. It's in our hearts, and each one of us is capable for it. Let us not think that we will not fall into the same judgment of God. But remember, when Jonah went to Nineveh and they repented, God forgave them. If we cry out and we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And so let us take the opportunity to repent and recognize that we too are just as bad as Syrians. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, Nahum is such a relevant book for today. God, may we not give into our pride and think that we are better but God, may we take great encouragement that we have now received a warning from you. And God, let us humble and may we run to you, our strong fortress. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. <laughs>